Okay, folks, we'll begin in a minute or two, just giving our latecomers time to join up as usual. Okay, Ji. Assalamualaikum. Welcome to the PID webinar. PID is trying to create a learning space in Pakistan. I hope we succeed, although I'm not sure because it's a tough task. Maybe it'll take a few generations for us to have a learning space in this country, but we'll keep trying. Uh, for the moment, we are very grateful to our honored guests, including the Minister Sanya Nishta. I hope is here, Sunny. The minister is here. So, minister, with your permission, let me begin the proceedings. We have a number of very good panelists, but in order to uh, start the discussion off, I'll invite Nasser Iqbal of Paid, who is the organizer, the originator, and the innovator who wants who's initiated this discussion. So, Nasser, will you please introduce the panel and start the proceedings? Introduce the panel. So. Nasser, Yes, can you hear me? Yes, fine. Yes, thank you so much. So let me briefly introduce the the, the, the worthy panel that is with us. So the, the, uh, we have Dr. Sanya Nishtar. She is the, the special assistant to Prime Minister on Social Protection and also the, the chairperson of Bainzir Income Sport Program. We also have a Ben Olkan. He is like a professor in a department of economics at MIT, and he is also a director of JPAL and co-director of National Bureau of Economic Research. He has a very extensive experience in working and evaluating the social protection system. With me, we have a Dr. Swail Safdar. He is a retired special secretary and former member of governance of planning commission. And now he is executive director of Social Protection Resource Center in Islamabad. Uh, with us, we have a Dr. Noreen. She's uh, like a policy head of CPEC uh, Center of Excellence. And with me, we have also Dr. Shujat. Previously, he was like additional director general monitoring and evaluation at BIFP. BIFP now is uh, assistant professor at PIT. I am Dr. Nasir Iqbal, associate professor at PIT. So, with this, I'll invite Bell Onkan to basically, the idea is uh, of this two-day seminar is to look into the, the international practices 
and how these practices will help us to reform or improve our social protection system and what are the global evidence how they are financed then uh, the, the next question is what are the financing need to us and if we really want to 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 expand our social safety safety net to cover everybody those deserve then what would be the financing need and what would be the shape of this social protection system then i myself and dr shijat and dr noreen basically talk about these things what would be the alternative financing mechanism then uh, dr sail basically give a brief overview of the unmet social protection need so with this brief introduction i'll Uh, hand over mic to Dr. Ben for the the introductory remarks. Over to Ben. Okay, thank you very much, Dr. Nasser. I'm uh, very pleased to be here today. Let me share my screen with some uh, slides. Okay, everyone can see the the slideshow. Yeah, yes, great. So I wanted to take uh, my opportunity um, here to. Uh, to take a few minutes to discuss some of the global evidence on uh, targeting issues in social protection programs, and particularly to think about how we can think about some of these issues in the, the sort of COVID-19 era. And in particular, as I think you know, all, all countries around the world, Pakistan included, have had to think about, you know, social protection has become increasingly important um, in the COVID era. It was always important, but particularly now, given all the challenges people have had, um, it's become increasingly important. But some of the ways that we think about social protection may be different given the challenges that we're facing uh, with COVID, uh, which are likely to continue in various forms uh, in the future. So I guess what I wanted to think about today is some of the global evidence and also how can we think about that uh, and how we should think about social protection differently now than we would have thought about it, say, in January before kind of the current crisis began. Okay, so... Um, Okay, great. So, um, you know, by way of introduction, oops, here we are. The, the COVID crisis uh, has created uh, lasting economic uh, impacts with great uncertainty. Um, and uh, both because of the, the sort of the, the, the direct impacts of, the, of the, the policies that were put in place to fight COVID, various lockdowns and things like that, but also COVID has created a, a big economic shock. Okay, and both of those things have created a need for social protection, I think on a larger scale than probably was done before in many countries, Pakistan included, but also perhaps in new forms and focusing on different people than before. Um, so many countries, in fact, almost all countries around the world have enacted or expanded their social assistance programs in the last five or six months in response to the COVID crisis. Um, and so the question was, you know, and when they were doing so kind of in the initial period, say in April or March, right when the crisis was starting, um, many countries basically utilized the existing systems or platforms they had in, in place, right? So they, they sort of said, look, what can we do with the systems that we have and how can we expand these to deal with the current crisis? So for example, uh, you know, in Kenya, authorities use the existing sort of flagship uh, in Wajami program and in Brazil, they expanded Bolsa Familia. Uh, in Indonesia, where I do a lot of my other work, they, they expanded a bunch of other programs that they had in place. So so basically what, what, what happened uh, when the, the crisis first hit was, it, every country sort of looked around and said, what are the existing mechanisms that we have? How can we 
adapt what we have in place to respond in an emergency situation. And that was sort of the, the, the right thing to do in an emergency because we needed to sort of rapidly scale and deliver assistance to people. And you can't create new programs from scratch in an emergency. You need to sort of use the existing mechanism you have and see how they can be expanded. So that was the right thing to do sort of in, in March and April. The question I think that countries are facing now is, you know, how should we be thinking about designing, how should these systems and programs be designed or redesigned over the coming, say, 12 to 24 months to support the challenges that we anticipate having in the future? And in some sense, that's what I want, I, uh, I want to sort of think a little bit about today. And I want to think about uh, three, this in three respects. What is the scope of programs and how should the scope of programs potentially be tied to the underlying health situation? So now, given that we, we, we expect the, the, the COVID pandemic to, to go in phases, it may rise in some places, it may fall, how, do, how should we be thinking about social protection differently depending on what's going on in the sort of the, the health, public health situation and in the economy? A second is how should we be thinking about targeting issues? And I'll give you some examples of how do we think about this. And likewise, how is the way that we think about targeting issues different now than it would have been, say, uh, you know, before this whole began, if we had been having this conversation in January? And the third is how do we think about delivering and digitization? And kind of my guiding principle here is that this crisis that we're, we're in is going to last, but it's also going to be going to evolve. And so if we get in a position like we were in in March or April where we need to do something fast, what we're able to do is going to be is going to depend on what the sort of investments and infrastructure that are built today are so that we have those kind of new uh, and better ways of thinking about things in the future. Okay, so that's the, the, the basic plan. So in terms of program scope, the what I wanted to sort of say here is that I think that in terms of the, the COVID crisis, I think there's an increasing recognition that this crisis is going to last. Okay, there's a lot of uncertainty about whether there will be a vaccine, when the vaccine will be available, whether the what, how long it will take for us to reach herd immunity, or even if that will happen. And as a result, we may imagine that countries are going to be potentially in and out of lockdown periods. You know, most many countries have emerged from these sort of initial sort of lockdowns or, or quasi lockdowns that they were in in, in March or April, but that, that may happen in the future. And there may, this may come in waves. And so we want to think about building something that's resilient to sort of this uncertainty that we're going to be facing. Okay. Of course, there are fewer tax dollars, right? And they're competing budgetary needs. So it's important to make sure that we make the best use of, of resources that are available. And so I think I already, I think that the other thing to think about is that different policy approaches are going to make sense depending on sort of the health situation and sort of where you are in responding to it. So, for example, if you think about when countries are in kind of their most extreme lockdown periods, right, when basically, you know, if you think about what happened in March or April, when basically everyone said everyone needs to stay home, we need to get this crisis under control. Um, these lockdowns are extremely costly. And this is particularly true in uh, emerging economies like Pakistan, where many of the poor basically live from hand to mouth, sort of, you know, their paychecks are what they consume. So, if you're going to be asking people to stay at home, the government needs to help them survive. Um, and that's not only for humanitarian reasons, although that's also very important, but it's actually also an important component of the of the public health policy. It's not going to be feasible to get people to stay at home if they need to, to go out and earn a living in order to survive. So for both the sort of humanitarian reasons and for sort of the effectiveness of, of the lockdown, 
if you're in these periods where you need to have sort of really intense uh, people staying at home and not working, you need to have a social protection policy that enables that to happen. Okay. And um, so, you know, many countries have, have done cash transfers. Other things you could think about are, are direct cash, direct food assistance, which allows automatic self-targeting, right? You don't need to distribute fancy food, you can distribute basic food. That can also help meet the basic needs and also help provide some additional targeting uh, assistance. But the point is in these lockdown periods, you need kind of a very universal transfer to make sure that, the, that, that both people aren't, literally aren't starving and also that the lockdowns are gonna work. On the other hand, if we move out of the period where lockdowns are, where, we're in, where, where we have lockdowns, then we wanna think about, I think, more targeted programs. And, and here the idea is with the same level of funds, and, and I've done some work with Rima Hanna that, that sort of illustrates these ideas, even with relatively high rates of targeting error, the overall welfare level of the poor is substantially higher under targeted programs than under universal programs. And part of this is because emerging economies have less of an ability to protect progressively tax back the transfer from the rich than developed countries do. So you may have heard a lot about universal basic incomes, but you know, in, in a place like the United States, if we did a universal basic income, what that would actually mean is we'd be giving a large transfer to the very poorest, but it wouldn't be the same transfer to everyone in the income distribution because everybody pays income tax. And so I would, I would increase the sort of amount that people who have no money get, but I would actually be taxing that back for people who have higher income levels. In most emerging economies where people, or most people do not pay personal income tax, a, a universal transfer basically gives the same amount of income much higher in the income distribution. So you effectively are, end up giving money to people who are in the 50, 60, 70% of the income distribution, which is a lot less efficient, okay? So targeted transfer programs are, are, gonna, be, are gonna look a lot, a lot better. Um, and so the question then, which I'll talk about next, is how do we think about effective targeting? But I guess what I, what I wanted to illustrate by sort of comparing, you know, what you have with lock, in the lockdown periods, what you have without the, sorry, what you have in the, in the lockdown periods and what you have in the non-lockdown periods is to suggest that, you know, one thing governments may want to consider is developing a strategy in which the generosity or the type of social protection programs are tied to the public health response automatically. Okay, so you can, many countries, for example, are classifying their territories into like red, yellow, and green zones, for example, depending on what's happening with the pandemic. And when you're in a red zone, you have the most intense lockdown to sort of to, to cut down the pandemic. When you're in yellow and green, you have less severe lockdowns to encourage economic activity. Okay, one thing you could consider is that when you move into a red zone, that could automatically trigger in that, say, district. Uh, probably not province in Pakistan, because provinces are probably too big, but say in that district, you know, that would automatically trigger sort of a social protection system to, in, to facilitate that, that lockdown. On the other hand, once you eliminate the lockdown, that social, that sort of transfer program would kind of go away automatically. And, and the, the, the nice thing about this idea is that it, it both makes the decision to go in and out of the lockdown more politically easier, because you're sort of when you're, when you're sort of making people's economic lives difficult, you're automatically giving them the transfer and vice versa. When you're taking it away, you're also making, you know, you're taking away the transfer, but you're also making their economic lives easier. It, it couples those, so it makes them move back and forth easier. It also makes sure that you're not locked into sort of giving transfers that you sort of feel like you're stuck giving forever because you've sort of explicitly said when they're gonna, the criteria for when they're gonna go away. So I, I think the first thing I sort of wanted to suggest then is thinking about the design of a transfer system where, the sort of type of program you run and the generosity of that program 
could be linked at sort of a geographic level, at a small geographic level to the, to the public health situation in, in a sort of data-driven and well-defined way. The second question I wanted to say is, well, when you move to a system where you have targeted transfers, how do we think about targeting, okay? So again, what happened sort of in, in March or April, many countries um, basically looked at what targeting data they had for their existing programs and tried to build off that, okay? And expand that in various ways. Um, and, um, you know, including in Pakistan, where they sort of, you know, built off the existing national social economic registry and expanded it in various feasible ways that could be done in sort of a short order. And sort of the extent to which this, this happened, I think, around the world was really remarkable. And I think was, um, was really, really a, a credit to the various governments uh, that were able to do this. Um, but I guess the question to think about now is, now that we're in the new normal and we have a little bit more time, how should we be investing in developing targeting structures that are gonna be appropriate in the, in the new era? Um, so many countries uh, have kind of what are called universal database systems. They have a single targeted database uh, based on like a social economic registry, which um, is the basis of sort of all their targeted transfer programs. And the question is, you know, what are the strengths and weaknesses of these systems and who is being included? How, and are these the right people? And I think that the most universal database systems, uh, including Pakistan's, uh, are based on what are called proxy means tests. Okay, and I, I wanna just spend a minute explaining what a proxy means test is, because I think it's really important for thinking about these systems in the, in the crisis. So what a proxy means test does, it says, look, we can't observe the income level of some particular poor household because it's not verifiable, right? Uh, we can't observe their income. If we ask them what their income was, there was no guarantee they would tell us the truth. So instead what we do in proxy means test systems is we observe proxies for people's incomes, okay? So we observe, for example, um, uh, whether they have, what kind of roof they have, whether they have a television, what kind of assets they have, and we construct a statistical proxy for their income based on the assets we can observe. And then you're targeted based on your proxy means test score, sort of an, an, a weighted average of these various assets, okay? So there are two things that are important to recognize about this. This is, this is a reasonable approach and it's a good approach for sort of long-term long -term, anti-poverty programs, but it's worth noting two things. The first is, your proxy means test, because it's based on your durable assets, are gonna be targeting the permanent component of your consumption, okay? So if I decide to make, to make a nicer roof or a nicer uh, wall of my house or to buy a durable asset, that's a long run decision that I'm making based on my kind of forecast of my long run, expected long run income, right? If I get a shock, like I recently lost my job, that's not gonna be immediately reflected in my durable assets, right? I might be, have no, no money to buy food, but still have a decent roof over my house because I bought the roof you know, a year ago, right? So the proxy means test is because it targets the permanent component of consumption, it's gonna systematically miss people who experience recent shocks, okay? The second point is that proxy means test systems are static, okay? And the data is updated infrequently. And because the goal of these systems is to target the permanent component of poverty, that's actually okay in normal times, where right? we want people who are sort of long run poor. So we don't need to measure that very often, but 
if we're interested in sort of dealing with shocks, this the fact that the data is old is going to potentially be an issue. Okay, so one needs to think about how do we think about these issues in this new era where we're increasingly worried about newly vulnerable people or people who may have looked middle class in terms of assets but faced really severe income shocks. How do we think about those issues? So um, I wanted to mention a couple of pieces of, of research that I and others have done um, on some of these issues. One that, that can help potentially augment, not necessarily replace, but augment kind of the proxy means test system to help think about targeting issues. So one thing that we've looked at is community-based targeting. And the idea here is you can give each community, uh, like a small village or a hamlet or things like that, a fixed number of slots. And you can allow community institutions to identify the beneficiaries. And perhaps you can base the number of slots on kind of the poverty level. And the idea is you can reduce exclusion error because you can say, look, we have given you additional slots for you to identify sort of the people in your community who are the poorest of the poor. Okay, and who may, and who are who were missed by the proxy means test list. So you can say, look, here are the people we have on the list. Is that but and you have suppose, suppose in your village we've said here are twelve people who are identified. We have five additional slots for you to identify people who are really poor and who may have been omitted. And you obviously need to think through having some community-based process to do this. You don't want to let it be done kind of willy-nilly. You want communities to think about sort of what are the definitions or criteria of poverty they're going to use. Um, but when we tried this in Indonesia, the evidence we found was that this, this worked very well. And it, it really captured kind of the local component of poverty and reduced exclusion error. And one thing that was really interesting when we tried this in Indonesia was we had many fewer complaints uh, about the, the list when it was done with a community method. And households in the community tended to better agree the list of beneficiaries kind of better matched the people in their uh, communities. And um, better actually who, who they thought should be poor. And again, I'm not suggesting we could replace a national social economic registry with this, but this would be a way to allow communities to give some input into the social economic registry to help reduce exclusion error. And actually in Indonesia where we work, where I've worked before, the, they've, um, They've expanded, they've done a lot on this by sort of using a village-based fund to allow villages to identify people who are missed by the sort of national transfer programs to give additional transfers directly to those, those villagers who are being missed. A second thing that could potentially work is what are called um, on-demand uh, uh, applications or self-targeting. And the idea here is that in a, in a traditional um, uh, proxy means approach, the government comes to you and says, you know, they, they come to every household, or they try to come to every household, and they um, uh, they uh, identify the proxy means test score. An alternative approach is to open up an application window and say, look, if you need assistance, you need to come apply. And as, as I understand it, I believe this is what Pakistan did to determine the, some of the emergency period under El Haas. Um, the idea of this application is twofold. Number one, the government might miss people. You know, it tries to be universal when it goes door to door, but it might miss some doors. And so here, people who are poor can make themselves known. And the second is, if there's some hassles or costs, you have to stand in line, you have to go to some, uh, you know, stand in line to get screened, the people who are more and less in need of assistance, they're not going to bother to apply because they think they're likely to get screened out later by the proxy means test. So when we again we did an experiment on this, 
we compared sort of who were the, this is, the, this shows you sort of the, the, the consumption levels of the beneficiaries who were, who, oh, sorry, the probability of getting, uh, uh, of getting assistance, um, it shows you the probability of getting assistance uh, for people who were in, chosen by an on-demand application and by like a door-to-door -door approach. And you can see two things. For the very poor, the probability of getting assistance was actually higher in the on-demand application. And that's because the government missed some people in the door-to-door -door approach. They tried to get everyone, but you know, some of the poor live on the margins of, of the village. They might not have get noticed by the surveyors. In the on-demand approach, they can make themselves known. So they had a higher chance of getting, of getting assistance. And for the wealthier, they had a lower chance of getting assistance. And that's because they didn't bother to apply because they thought they were likely to get screened out. Whereas you know, all targeting systems make some errors. And so you know, with the with door-to-door -door approach, some of the rich got through. And so our, our evidence suggests that actually um, the on-demand approach, can, the, the sort of application-based approach can do a better job uh, both reducing exclusion error and reducing inclusion error. And so those are things to think about. Uh, the third thing I would mention is that novel sources of data can be really important. So, you know, the current crisis requires us to identify approaches target everyone using administrative data, like cell phone data, electricity data, bank account data, lists of people laid off by formal industry, and sort of merging those together to find new sources of data that can be used for verification purposes um, to help find ways of figuring out who's poor and who's not poor that don't depend as much on the permanent component of consumption, but can depend more on sort of the current levels of consumption. So there's been some really innovative work using sort of cell phone data, for example, to help predict income levels based on sort of, you know, where people are, how much cell phone credit people are using, how much they're talking to, et cetera. You know, those can be linked through sort of a universal identifier, like a CNIC number, as, as part of an algorithm to help sort of include or exclude people as well. So those are some things to think about in targeting. I, uh, I, um, I want to say that sort of, you know, in using these new sources of data, linking everything together using like universal IDs, like people see and they see numbers is really important, but that is only going to work if we really make sure that everybody, including the poorest of the poor, have those universal ID systems. So I think it's increasing, have, so it's increasingly becoming clear that universal IDs are going to be an important component in, 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 in these tar uh, poverty targeting systems. But that only is going to really work if those systems are really universal. And so I think that sort of consistent with that is investing in having a really big push to making sure that everybody, including the poor, has these universal IDs because as a way of, uh, of sort of using these new data sources. I only have a couple of minutes left, but I just wanted to make a couple additional points about sort of the delivery and uh, digitization issues. So, you know, I think that um, this crisis with sort of uh, the, the importance of social distancing um, has reinvigorated the move to digital enrollment and digital payments. And um, I'll skip digital payments for a second, but I just wanted to make a couple of points. Uh, the first is, is that these digital enrollment systems only are as good as that underlying data. So we did an ex experiment in Indonesia where we tried to sign people up for uh, for for universal government a government a government health insurance program, and we either had them come to the office to sign up, or this was a couple of years ago pre-COVID, or sign up kind of through sort of an online-based system, and we gave them assistance signing up in the online-based system. And the key thing you can see is that in the online-based system, you know, 43% of people attempted to enroll in the thing. 
but only 19% of people actually succeeded in enrolling. Whereas when they came to the office, the, you know, a lot fewer people came to the office, but those who attempted to enroll actually succeeded in enrolling. And why was that? Well, what happened was people tried to enroll in the online system. They discovered that there were errors in the underlying uh, administrative data. Like for example, you know, your, the family members weren't listed properly and then the system kind of got stuck. And online, they weren't able to um, sort of do a manual override and sort of fix people's kind of information. And they were sort of limited to the constraints of what was in that online system. And so again, this just sort of re-emphasizes the importance of, uh, of having really successful, a really complete sort of a really good basic infrastructure for the online ID system in order to, um, to, 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 to start using some of these digital enrollments. Uh, the second thing I wanted to mention was, you know, um, some, some experiment with some, some results from, from India where a move to sort of digital payments and biometric authentication had heterogeneous effects uh, depending on the state. So in, in AP, for example, it actually led to faster and less corrupt payments, you know, but in Jharkhand, um, you know, it actually did not reduce leakages and reduce benefits for those who had not previously registered. And, and the reason was that basically, that um, in AP, the system was sort of very flexible at allowing sort of previously unregistered beneficiaries to kind of find a way to enroll, whereas system in Jarcon didn't have that flexibility. So people who didn't have their IDs before were sort of excluded. And so again, I just want to sort of say there's a, a bit of a cautionary note, which is we move to sort of more electronic and more online systems. We have to make sure that sort of people who don't have IDs or whose IDs have problems, that there's some way their data can be updated in, in the online system so they're not excluded from the programs. Otherwise, these things have the potential to backfire. So to, to sum up, you know, in an emergency, um, you have to use what systems you have in place. But where we are now, I think we can forecast that there's a likelihood that this crisis may reemerge. And so we need to reinvest now, invest now in building out kind of an effective targeting infrastructure um, so that uh, if we kind of, so, so that we can adapt kind of our ability to deliver social assistance to the changing environment that's likely to happen in the future. And in particular, sort of this COVID era that we've entered may require sort of more dynamic targeting systems than were the place in the pre-COVID era. So those are things to think about. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you, Ben, for giving a very excellent presentation and basically giving the idea of how uh, the emergency situation re-emerged, the idea of this uh, targeting and the, the role of this community targeting is well defined in the literature. And uh, as you are aware that the BIST started with this community targeting that shifted to scientific method. And then now the mix of these two things that would really good idea to, to move in, in such a, a, a emergency situation. Now I asked Dr. Shijar to basically give an overview of how, what is actual uh, the social protection system uh, working in Pakistan and what are the key challenges if we want to really finance this social protection system. Over to Dr. Shijar. Uh, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Uh, you know that uh, social protection and social safety net programs have gained significance uh, all around the globe uh, as an integral part of inclusive growth strategies in, in many uh, developing countries. Uh, and with passage of time, there is more spending on social safety nets uh, 
uh, like now on average it is around 1.5% of gdp uh, overall uh, it is highest in Lat latin american countries uh, and lowest in south asian countries in south asian countries we have right now around 0.9% uh the type uh, the spending also uh, highly depend on the type of programs uh, like uh, the latin american countries brazil chile uh, that have very rigorous social safety net programs and mostly they rely on conditional cash transfers uh, to provide on education health nutrition where they have basket of interventions uh, whereas in south asian countries we still rely on uh, unconditional cash transfers uh, need based and reactionary uh, mode interventions uh, pakistan has a long history of social safety net programs uh, and still we are in transition uh, to develop a rigorous uh, social protection strategy uh, that can help in poverty elevation uh, in 80s and 90s uh, pakistan started uh, zakat and petul mal programs uh, and mostly these are the need based interventions uh, um, in 2001 we started the microfinance programs but all these programs lack uh, sufficient resources uh, proper coverage and systematic targeting mechanisms as when was highlighted uh, like uh, budget of zakat and petul mal that was just around few billion rupees and it was stagnant over the time uh, similarly we don't have uh, uh, distinct welfare impacts uh, 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 over the microfinance uh, initiatives uh, on poverty elevation Uh, so i think in pakistan uh, the emergence of bisp in 2008 uh, laid the formal foundations of a large scale social safety net intervention in pakistan in terms of both the coverage uh, as well as the financial resource availability uh, although this uh, uh, spending mostly remained on uh, unconditional cash transfers uh, to around 5 million families during 2008 to 2019 period Uh, and we consider that unconditional cash transfers uh, uh, alone might not be sufficient for poverty elevation uh, however this can be showcased as an achievement due to various reasons first uh, you know that uh, all the recipients are the women uh, so uh, it is uh, has been targeting the uh, most vulnerable group in pakistan second it has been owned by all the governments uh, it was started with budgetary allocation of rupees 34 billion and every successive government enhanced the budget so right now for current fiscal year the budget is around 208 billion so it, there is a immense improvement uh, third uh, there is strong presence of donors and development partners around 8 to 10% budget is contributed by uh, donors and as uh, ben was highlighting that coverage and targeting is the major issue Uh, in social safety net program so this has a registry uh, and this registry has been uh, has been widely used uh, to target the poor and vulnerable segments uh, uh, and this also have the innovative payment disbursement systems like uh, uh, there is payment through biometric systems that can help the financial inclusion among the poor and vulnerable segments and there was system in place so that's why uh, you know that recently uh, during covid 19 the government has targeted 17 million families 45% of the population uh, through provision of fast emergency cash uh, and there was this since this was presence there was improvement in the system so that's why recently uh, a ministry of poverty elevation and social safety division is established and fast strategies formulated that have multi phase interventions Uh, i will not go in details because i hope that uh, samia nishtar will explain this uh, sas strategy uh, but still uh, there are challenges as well as opportunities 
that I want to place uh, uh, on this forum. So first, uh, after 2010 constitutional amendment, uh, provincial governments have also established social protection initiatives. Uh, like Punjab is quite ahead, they have developed social protection authority. Uh, Haber Pakhtunha government has launched health program. So still, I think uh, uh, there is duplication um, uh, as well as exclusion, and uh, some connections are required at federal and provincial tiers. Uh, it will also effectively pool the resources. Uh, uh, so I suggest that uh, a social protection framework must be developed uh, by enlisting the roles and responsibilities of various government tiers. Uh, second, uh, the spending by private sector uh, on various philanthropic activities in Pakistan is manifold uh, than the government resources. Uh, so such resources may be tapped by involving the private sector that may result uh, with better coverage, uh, innovation, transparency, and management of resources. Uh, third, uh, to effectively utilize the resources, uh, uh, social safety net programs requires flexibility uh, in targeting. Uh, I think Dr. Nasser will explain it in, uh, in better detail uh, because you know that uh, there could be uh, different nature and causes of poverty. For example, chronic poor, uh, they lack assets-based, and they require uh, a certain intervention that can create assets. Uh, similarly, transient poorers, uh, they lack protective measures from shocks and require certain interventions that can help them from escaping the shocks and falling into poverty. Uh, and lastly, uh, uh, I consider that social protection programs alone are not the magic bullet uh, to resolve all socioeconomic issues. Uh, for example, we have high malnutrition with no significant reduction over the last two decades. Uh, similarly, there is lack of equitable health services and most of the poor finance from their own pockets. Uh, education is another uh, challenging area. For example, uh, the latest highs 2018-19 shows that 30% uh, uh, of the children are out of school. And if we look at the data of Balochistan, 52% uh, of the boys and 67% of the girls are out of school. So uh, alone social safety net may not resolve the issues. Uh, like BISP has uh, recently expanded its Masilai Talim program throughout country. Uh, by providing cash assistance to the children for poor families uh, to encourage enrollment and retention. Uh, however, you know that uh, education is a provincial subject. So without improvement in access and quality of education, alone incentives uh, may not give uh, to improve in enrollment, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, similarly, there is another area, uh, uh, like in Pakistan, there are a lot of subsidies and most of the subsidies are untargeted. For example, uh, during last year, government provided 50 billion subsidies to the utility stores uh, and it was untargeted. Uh, so these subsidies may be targeted for better, better utilization of resources. Uh, so as a way forward, uh, I suggest that it is necessary that along with social safety net interventions, uh, there must be improvement in existing socio-economic structure uh, to include the poor in acquiring education, uh, skills, uh, entrepreneurship, etc. Uh, access to opportunities uh, can do, but uh, cash transfers may not do. That is moving out of poverty. Uh, thank you, Nasser. Okay, thank you, Shijat, for giving an overview of uh, the social protection system. Basically, I'll just pick a point from the pen and Shijat the the first that there is a big need of the social protection across the globe and the evidence clearly support this idea of social protection it may be a universal it may be a targeted it depends upon the the, the 
the financing need, financing availability that we have. But when we look into the, the, the dynamics of Pakistan and uh, it's well-known phenomena that over 50 million people are struggling in different shapes. As Shujal said, uh, some people have a, like income poverty, like more than 50 million people are falling in income poverty. Then there are a number of people, though they have this education poverty, so they are out of school. And then there is a, uh, this idea of health poverty. They, are, uh, they don't have access to the health facilities. And last week we called this an environmental poverty. So they don't have basically protection from these environmental issues. So if we keep all these things in mind, then it means uh, so that the program should cover not only this uh, target, this income poverty, where we are basically giving them some sort of cash to support uh, food. There is a need to, to redefine this whole scenario to optimize the existing financial resources uh, to, to maximize uh, the, the, the outcome. Like if we are targeting the education sector, then the package would be different. And if we are talking about the health sector, then the package would be different. If we are talking about the food subsidy, then the, the targeting system would be different. And if we are talking about the employment, as Ben is also working on this, uh, uh, working on this uh, the different graduation program and they are testing with the different beneficiaries, so with this, uh, the, we at the PIDE has developed four different packages that basically uh, uh, the, the aim of these packages to redefine this whole social protection system and maximize, uh, maximize the outcome. So I'll briefly touch upon these, uh, these packages. Basically the idea behind this that we should judge the program and based on not on the intention. So, so the idea is to look into the outcome, what really we want to achieve. The first, uh, the package that we are suggesting would be the employment in intensive package that gives some sort of, uh, like as Dr. Sanya Nishter knows that there is a rickshaw driver, there are tailors and there are technical education that basically give them some sort of a breathing space if there is a youth in the household. Then the next package basically is talk about the education in intensive package. Here, the, our focus would be the transfer meant for education, not for any other purpose. And the next package, package would be the health. If there is a disabled household, in, uh, people in the household, if there are old people in the household, if there are two young people in the household that need special health care, then the third package could, be, uh, could mainly focus on this, the health side. And the fourth package that we are proposing is food intensive package. So the idea behind these packages instead of running one more than 100 different activities and spending most of the, the, the income on these unconditional cash transfers, where the needs of the people is different. If we allow people to choose one package from these, these four packages and there would be a, some sort of criteria behind these packages, that really will help us to basically optimize the use of these resources. So we are uh, talking about include everybody in the system, but based on their requirement, if they are looking for the employment opportunities, we can include them in the employment intensive package where we can give them some sort of uh, training, some sort of as a transfer. Then if there is a household that really need an education support, that package basically is only target uh, the education. So these are the packages that meant to to increase the efficiency as well as the outcome of this all because we are struggling with education 
we are struggling with the health and we are struggling also the unemployment so we should have to revisit this whole uh, set of a social protection system to align with the needs of the people and to to uh, as we said in the, the economics what would be the optimal use of these resources so with the given financial constraint and the, the, the next speaker basically will talk about the, what are the alternative financial resources because the government has allocated 208 million billion rupees for this social protection system and within the covid situation they have extended to to more than 250 billion but this is was the one time allocation that government hardly afford what would be the future of these type of intervention if we really need need resources so at the end i'll ask ben also to to shed some light on how these uh, 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 can be contributed with this i invite dr swel safter to give the the idea what type of actual requirement we have in in the nature and what would be their nature and how we we basically put some ideas in term of looking the way forward of this esas uh, program over to swel safter dr swel kindly unmute yourself sir yeah can you hear me now yes thank you so much sir okay and, and my slides are also shared okay uh, well uh, when i received this uh, invitation to speak on this uh, uh, webinar we were very i was very happy to uh, say yes to this uh, because this uh, is linked with the work that we are uh, doing uh, many of the colleagues uh, present today know that we have established uh, pakistan alliance for social protection and then a dedicated think tank on uh, social protection by the name of social protection resource center uh, i remember the first meeting that we had on 13th of february dr nasir Uh, from pite was also present in that in that meeting where we discussed uh, the issues related to uh, covid uh, and when i received the agenda i requested dr nasir to let me speak after uh, dr shujat and uh, dr uh, nasir himself because i was fearing that uh, uh, in this webinar uh, social protection would be used as a synonymous of uh, social assistance Uh, income transfers uh, direct and uh, indirect and uh, i'm not happy to say that my fear has been actually <laughs> confirmed that in the last three uh, presentation particularly the last two dr shahzad and dr nasir uh, nobody uttered the word social security institutions uh, nobody talked about the right and responsibility of the of the state uh, and here uh, i would start with the uh i'll very briefly uh, these are the uh, partner organizations of uh, uh, pakistan alliance for social protection uh you see uh, uh professor ben uh, alken uh asked this question that uh, covid has forced us 
to ask this question that what we could have done pre-COVID, which should have helped us uh, during COVID and after COVID. Uh, we also uh, posed this question to us and our response was that we wish that we had not neglected the institutional social security, work-based social security. Then our, uh, then our situation would have been different. We would have known where to take the aid, uh, not complain about the absence of data. Uh, the, the work done by Dr. Sani Nishtar and her division uh, is excellent, was excellent, was much uh, needed. But even if you look at the relevant literature of ILO World Bank, the safety nets were poor. Uh, they, uh, they have an importance in the countries which are afflicted with, uh, with a legacy of uh, poverty. Uh, but uh, I think to replace the word social protection with the social with the poverty reduction strategy paper and to say and do all those things that we have been doing. In a way, I would say that it's an admission of uh, the fact that uh, PRSPs did not work. So you needed income transfer. That is fine. Uh, uh, that, that, that is important. But uh, on this slide, all that is shown above, uh, that is institutional social security. And if a country takes care of the institution social security, then the need for income transfers is gradually reduced, one would say. You would always have uh, people who would be long-term unemployed, you would have people, destitutes, uh, which would need a state uh, support. But basically, most of the needs uh, of the people are met by the institutional social security. In, in this uh, context, I think when we talk about financing, there is a uh, uh, a need to unpack the word universal and then social protection, the word social also. There's only one condition where social assistance becomes a universal social protection. That is a complete closure, such a closure of the economy where work cannot bring you the protection. Now, we, we had that in, in COVID, though not a very long one, as long as uh, uh, we had in let's say world war ii but still uh, this is a hypothetical poll that we saw that this is possible when the traditional social security institution the systems introduced by the states become dysfunctional and you have no choice but to give to everybody that's the sense of the universal in in this uh, construction but i would like to draw uh, the attention of the participants to the other hypothetical poll also uh, the literature says that this is possible that if a country takes care of the work-based social security, you do not need social assistance. Now that hypothetical poll is also uh, as important as the other hypothetical poll that we have seen. So in this uh, context, usually there is a mixing of uh, uh, universal social protection with universal basic income. And, and once you start talking about the universal social protection, uh, immediately people would say that it's not affordable. But we say in our uh, context, at our uh, Social Protection Resource Center, uh, the vision that is informing our uh, research as a think tank, our job is to complement the efforts of the government by producing high quality uh, knowledge. There, what we say is that, let's define first the unmet needs. What do you call 
something as an unmet need. For us, this is the failure and neglect of the institutional work-based social security, which has accumulated over time as unmet social protection needs, uh, which initially could be, uh, could be helped uh, somewhat through social assistance programs. But in the long term, we are already out of COVID and we know that uh, the, uh, the impressive and huge uh, social protection stimulus, uh, COVID-related uh, stimulus packages uh, have remained largely unutilized. Uh, if uh, the government wants to enhance the uh, volume of uh, social assistance uh, transfers, conditional, non-conditional, that is very fine. Uh, we, uh, we think that that is important. But what in the medium to long term would we continue in, that, in this way that people continue accumulating their vulnerabilities and uh, you, uh, they let uh, money go out of the household on account of health, on account of uh, court uh, expenditure, for example, and we keep on increasing uh, the support to them. So in that, in that context, we, uh, the time allotted to me is, is very uh, little. Uh, I have just identified seven major questions that in any uh, debate on financing universal social protection uh, in, uh, in Pakistan, uh, let's say, we need to address a couple of questions academically through research, through evidence that would help us improve our responses uh, better. So when uh, we say the unmet needs of social protection, we are not talking about the universal basic income. We are talking about concrete building blocks like old age, like disability, like unemployment, like uh, pension, like health. And destitution, of course, is, is there. So one has to go to that level and to go to the subnational level. And uh, I'm very happy to report that our, uh, our think tank is actually uh, developing a state of social protection report for Pakistan, where we are doing the district mapping on the basis of the unmet needs and the provisioning which is there. And then uh, our report would be soon out. So uh, we have to uh, discuss it whether the social assistance and social security regimes are mutually exclusive or complementary and which should be the foundation stone. What is basic, what the government, and here when, when we say government, it's not only the federal government, these are the provincial governments, these are the local governments, uh, which need to uh, develop a consensus. Uh, we have uh, now uh, a long list of institutions apparently dealing with social protection, uh, starting with social security institution in the provinces, uh, old age benefit institution, workers' welfare fund, and now uh, we have many new, uh, Dr. Jat uh, uh, counted those uh, institutions. So there a consensus has to be there that what do we really want, how to create complementarities between the institutional welfare, which has been neglected. Uh, you see, I mean, one simple example, only 10 million formal uh, labor is, exists in Pakistan out of 60 million. And out of those 10 million, uh, uh, the secured workers number is only 1.3 million. So that, that is how the needs are being uh, created. Uh, in, in that context, uh, this is good to uh, hear to all these scholarly debates on uh, uh, socioeconomic registry. Uh, for us, uh, NSER uh, is a useful tool as is the multidimensional uh, poverty uh, index uh, also. But uh, 
uh, NSER is NSER the answer, answer to quantify the needs of uh, social uh, protection? Uh, that that is another question which is uh, important. Uh, uh, I have already talked about the need of having uh, a proper institutional arrangements. Now, uh, our work over the last many months uh, tells us that there are two universes, uh, statistically speaking. Uh, that is the old age and the severe cases of disability, which should be taken out of this, ex this exercise of exclusion and inclusion. Uh, the misery and pain and suffering uh, of these two universes is immense and a very bad comment on our sense of solidarity and the resource requirements is also not, not that big. Uh, we all know that um, uh, the employees old age uh, benefit institution covers a, a tiny amount, tiny number of uh, the ex-workers. 75% of Pakistani older people have no social protection whatsoever. And we have this phenomena of hitting uh, our older people with those disease clusters which hit in Korea 20 years later. Uh, the disease and infirmity picture of the older people uh, in Korea at 75 is visible in Pakistan at, at 55. Uh, the disability also, uh, we are happy that uh, ISAS is also taking care of that, but I think we need to be much more bold on this account. And these two issues are, uh, we have our views on the uh, on the structure of the social security, social protection system between the federation and the provinces. But I think on, on the account of disability and pensions, we need to have a national system. And then we talk about the financing requirements uh, on that. Now, another uh, missing element is that uh, health. What does it mean? Uh, what uh, you see, taking health as a contingency, this notion has to change. This is a basic right. Essential services to health is a basic right. And there uh, now, this is good that we have bold schemes like Seth Saurut in KPK, in SIN, we have a lot of experiences in microinsurance also. But there we need to have a more open debate that whether these social insurance schemes, would they reduce the out-of-pocket expenditure? or would they improve the quality of care or would they improve the key uh, health indicators? So there we, we should not uh, go into adopting uh, the social insurance so-called or, or health insurance uh, through private sector. Uh, if if uh, evidence says, the global evidence says, and there I-, I, I jaldi kar le, kafi der ho there is only one uh, last slide, sir, but uh, I, I must point out before I conclude that um, we, uh, our work is based on the global evidence. So whatever we are suggesting to debate is, is it's not at all a crit critique on what uh, good work is being done on SAS and the use of technology and uh, modern techniques to uh, enhance uh, the effectiveness of, uh, of, the, of the transfers. And the last but not the least is the key uh, decision one needs to take that what is the role of government in providing uh, social security benefits. Right now, the system is that government does not put a rupee in the system between the employers and the employees, whereas in a lot of countries, uh, government pays up. Indirectly, we have started picking up, let's say, the premium for uh, the health uh, insurance schemes. But um, instead of using the word insurance, which in Pakistan even otherwise uh, creates uh, issues, 
uh, can we talk about the linkage between the savings and the future needs of uh, uh, social protection of Pakistani citizens through uh, an institutional arrangement? Gamra Pakistan did introduce this voluntary pension scheme after 10 years in 2007, but failed to put in place the right kind of institution. So should we enlarge the scope of the traditional employee social security institutions and make it into a national uh, system? and make it as the mainstay of universal social protection in Pakistan and have social assistance uh, delivered wherever it is needed in, in the most sophisticated way that we are doing here. So finally, I, I would say that uh, uh, there are many questions. Uh, if we, the COVID has, uh, uh, has made us all aware that how thin our social, social protections have been and hardly one week into COVID, we were talking about which kind of death to choose, uh, hunger or, or disease. This should not have happened had we uh, equalized the social protection in the country. So once we are clear about the basic questions, then financing, uh, it would be easier to discuss the financing options. And of course, we uh, believe that uh, contributory uh, uh, schemes play a major role in having a robust, reliable uh, social protection system in the long term. And uh, there, I think there is a need that we uh, critically look at uh, all the above questions and then uh, develop a consensus and take the necessary actions to uh, now, at least after post-COVID, there's a lot of money around, there's a lot of allocations around. Uh, why can't we pass a big chunk of this money through the employee social uh, security and give the targets to the employee social security institutions to integrate as many as possible unorganized sectors in the formal social security in a given time frame? In five years' time, we would have a much bigger uh, coverage, let's say, of 50% of government gives the target, the federal government, of 50% secured worker in Pakistan by 2025 and 100% secured workers by 2030. The, the vision of uh, providing minimum social protection to all the citizens as their right and as a responsibility of the government uh, could, be, uh, could be fulfilled. Otherwise, I fear that the route that we are pursuing uh, with more interest may not take us uh, there where, where we uh, say that we want to go. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Thank you, Alexa, for giving a broader overview of this uh, basic need and old age benefit. Basically, what we are talking about is the, the social protection system and how we can incorporate this old age and also the disabled people within that system. So, so with this, now I ask Dr. Noreen to give what would be the alternate option available to us if we really want to expand this social protection system. And as Dr. Swells of the said, we have to include the old age people as well in this system. So over to Dr. Noreen. Hey, Assalamu alaikum everyone and good evening. Um, thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. Um, I would be discussing the existing options. Let me share my screen so we can discuss the existing options which are available and which are basically, yes. So basically, um, 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 I'm supporting the um, arguments which uh, Ben has given for the targeting about the uh, financing option to 
towards the social protection. Also, Dr. Nasser and Dr. Shujat, who have given that we have to target rather than giving everyone cash in hand, we should focus on the specific areas where the financing options are required. So usually when we are talking about the social protection programs, they are usually financed by the government. But today, the focus of my presentation would be rather than focusing on the specific areas which are exercised by the government, for example, reallocating public expenditures, increasing tax revenues, lobbying for aid and transfers, using fiscal and foreign exchange reserves, and also borrowing or restructuring existing debts, we should focus on some more innovative ideas so that these social protection programs can be financed efficiently. For this, what I have done is I have divided these social areas into different uh, domains. Uh, rather than focusing specifically on po poverty alleviation, I would say, um, uh, like Dr. Nasser has already said, rather than focusing and giving them cash in hand and focusing on poverty alleviation, we should be focusing on health, we should be focusing on financing opportunities, we should be exercise for the education, for the poverty, then it would obviously um, serve for the SDG goals in terms of SDG 1 as well. Now, coming to the first one, that is the social impact bond, that is paying for the success and the social benefit bonds. So people should be more towards the social benefit impacts that are given through these bonds if these are exercised. For example, these are exercised in Germany, India, and these country lists are given in the next column. Um, so these are the impact bonds. So basically what you need to do is you need to uh, synthesize the uh, economy and the general public so that they should come towards some kind of impact towards the economy rather than giving them uh, a specific or, or a generic term. For example, talking about the diaspora bond, which has been exercised and which has been adopted very successfully in Israel and India, they have been focusing on their diaspora with a specific impact, with a specific image, which they wanted to have it in uh, their economy, for example, towards the education. They have utilized their diaspora for education bond. They have utilized their diaspora bond for the health as well. So rather than going for a generic term for your economy, you should be going towards the specific agendas and areas. Now, I would focus more on the product red, which I guess can be exercised in Pakistan as well. Uh, what product red is that, for example, there are giant brands or the huge brands in the world. Uh, they have joined their hands for the eight uh, African economies to eradicate uh, HIV and also the COVID now. For example, um, product red includes your red iPhone. That also include your red products in Gap red products in Nike, what they do is they create their specific line of their product out of the, those sales, 10% or 15% straight away goes towards that particular cause, which in these terms, in this particular product red term is your uh, going towards the elimination of HIV and COVID in African economies. Um, the debt conversion bonds or the debt swaps, for example, rather than paying towards your creditors, your loans, these economies, for example, Gambia and Kyrgyzstan, they have changed their debt payments towards their uh, towards their social causes. For example, they have converted their loan payments or servicing towards the improvement of education sector or towards the education of their health sector. So that is another option which can be exercised. Uh, financial levies are also one of the options which these economies have been exercising. And now coming towards the health sector, there are different agenda for example, in terms of the health sector, uh, there are 
countries who have been exercising the taxes on the unhealthy food items so that is one option same tax are applied on those products which are socially unacceptable to some extent so the taxes can be imposed on those uh, items so it depends in uh, economy to economy what items are socially unaccepted and the taxes can be imposed towards those items and they can be obviously linked towards the improvement of their health sector now again diaspora has done really well in terms of health sector in india lebanon and israel as well luxury taxes have been utilized by china china bulgaria and indonesia for the improvement of their health sector i'll go quickly because we have uh, running out of time so the education sector again the debt servicing can be utilized the diaspora bond education impact bond as uh, the other speakers have already focused that we should be very much specific towards the financing options and we should be very specific about the social protection program rather than uh, having the unconditional transfer we should be focusing on the conditional transfers so that should be linked towards the specific area where we are focusing on so education impact bond and the private and public partnerships which are being exercised in different economies and they are done really well and the private fundraising schemes can be adopted for the improvement of your education sector as well why i have included tourism in this uh, because in terms of cpac we know that tourism is something which is the area which the government is also focusing on so we can generate funds from there as well that can be tourism consumption uh, taxes and the traveler saving funds on those uh, destinations so these can be utilized towards the any of the area which you think should be uh, focusing on towards the education towards the um, for example unemployment you were talking about so obviously these types of funds can be utilized towards those areas as well again to uh, the last one where you are talking about the poverty you are also talking about the environment as well so when we are talking about the environment so there are the climate bonds and the green bonds which have been introduced by different economies now specific towards the pakistan what i think is that the social impact bonds where obviously some kind of impact can be introduced towards the general public secondly diaspora obviously if we can uh, move the diaspora towards a specific cause we have already launched the pakistan banao certificates but i guess the term is broad we can make it specific towards the education sector towards the uh, health sector so that obviously we can go for the uh, patriotic sentiments as well and the desire to do something good towards their country product red we have a lot of potential towards our textile sector for example the khadi and the gul ahmed and everyone Uh, uh, females are buying uh, uh, products from them females are buying suits from them for around 20000 25000 if these uh, textile sector companies the huge companies can join hand and they they can introduce a specific uh, product or a specific line of product so that some kind of amount can go towards a specific cause for the government again the debt swaps and the taxes on unhealthy foods tourism uh, these are the taxes which can be imposed um as i said the green bond and the blue bond these are specific towards the uh, environment and also if you are talking about the blue bond so that is towards the water uh, sanitation and everything so in those so um i'm quick i know but i thought i, I should go very quickly so that i can introduce introduce the existing options which we can exercise and the world has already exercised so basically we have 10 years in terms of that by 2030 we are focusing to to make social protection a reality for everyone thank you Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Narin, for giving an alternative options to explore. Now, this we have a very rich discussion on what type of social protection system and what are the global evidence and what are practices adopted in Pakistan and what type of expansion can be needed and how we can merge uh, for a better outcome. 
with this now we have uh, like a chairperson of BISP that has a very extensive experience and also looking after the, this SAS program, the, the flagship program of the government. So over to Dr. Sanya Nishter for, uh, for giving a government point of view on all these discussion that we have today. Assalamualaikum uh, ji. Um, thank you uh, for asking me to be with you uh, this evening. It's a pleasure indeed. Um, I've attempted to share my slides with you. I hope that I have been successful in doing that. Yes. Okay. Can you see the first slide now? Yes. Okay. So uh, I, I realize that time is short and I don't know to what extent uh, I'll be able to cover the grounds that I had hoped to, but I will try to be very quick. Um, my sense was that you know, so you can audience. take as much time as you like. You can take as much time as you like. There's no constraints. Okay, thank you, Nadim. So uh, my sense was that you'd be interested in hearing about SAS emergency cash, and I thought that I could uh, prefix it by telling you a little bit about SAS itself. Uh, and I thought I'd start with this slide about the theory, you know, which outlines the theory of change of SAS because SAS is a multi-component, multi-dimensional program with more than 140 actions and initiatives, uh, some of which are process-centered, some of which are programmatic, um, and everything is knitted together in theory of change. We've explained the rationale for this uh, in uh, the strategy document, which has been in the public domain for quite some time. In the strategy document, it has also been explained how the various policies and programs uh, fall under its various pillars, uh, which aspects are cross-cutting, and how they link with time-bound outcome-based goals. Uh, so all that is schematically illustrated, the narrative of uh, the whole strategy piece has been outlined. Uh, <clears throat> I use these three colors to explain how everything meshes together in theory of change. Um, more than 130 actions and initiatives, as I said earlier, packaged, and there are various ways to classify it in addition to meshing them together in theory of change. And one way of classifying them is to, um, to look at how those mandates uh, play out in terms of the responsibilities of federal ministries, the provincial governments, and PAST, which is the name for the poverty and social safety division uh, for which I have responsibility. Uh, this is a newly created uh, division, as you know, and it's popularly known as the SAS ministry. So the three colors align under these three heads of responsibilities. There is also another way to describe these three uh, colors in terms of classification, and that is by the pillars under which these fall. Uh, and there are four pillars, uh, the safety net pillar, the execution responsibility for which uh, falls on my shoulders and my colleagues is. Then there is the human development pillar. Uh, and other than the education and the nutrition conditional cash transfers and the scholarship aspect of SAS, uh, this is largely in the provincial domain. Then is the job and livelihoods um, pillar. 
and the graduation related responsibilities are on our plate illustrated by the green but essentially there are many other aspects related uh, th that fall within the purview for the federal ministries and then pro poor governance because somebody earlier on said uh, that a lot of uh, the strategy piece around improving lives is also about addressing elite capture and about making the government pro poor and I completely agree with that. So uh, I just wanted to let you know that, the, that those aspirations and programmatic interventions are also part of the ESAS strategy. Uh, so this is essentially another way of classifying the various initiatives and aspirations under ESAS. There is yet another way of classifying these initiatives. And as Dr. Nasser was speaking, he was talking about how the different, uh, how social safety nets and uh, welfare initiatives and call it what you like, uh, should resonate with the needs of different constituencies with different vulnerable groups. And I completely agree with him. So in the ISAS ecosystem, there are initiatives and policies and programs that target laborers and uh, poor elderly citizens, poor women, non-affording students, uh, individuals who are differently abled, widows, orphans, extreme poor, jobless, those who are undernourished. And I'm sure you must have noticed that just last week, about 10 days ago, we, we launched a new initiative called Esas Nashunama, which which falls under the under this particular uh, target group, if you can follow my my cursor. So just to let you know that in the SARS ecosystem, we designed not just the interventions for this different target groups, but also made sure that the responsibilities are clearly aligned and that all of these things ultimately mesh together in, in theory of change. Uh, and that all of them fall under different programs and pillars so that they contributed contributory to time bound outcome based targets. And it ended with a hell of a lot of planning uh, and meshing together so many different ideas that that took about three months from January to March. Uh, and I slept very little during that time, as you as you can imagine. Currently, as as uh, as we stand today for the purpose of uh, communication. Uh, we communicate as us uh, through these tags, through, these, through, through the branding of these pro programmatic uh, tags. Uh, so just to give you a, because I know some people may not read the local language on the screen, Asas um, Kafalat, for instance, is the reformed previously run unconditional cash transfer program. It's, it is a new program for all practical purposes. Then is SRS emergency cash, which we ran uh, during, uh, during COVID. Then is SRS scholarships, the Pakistan's largest undergraduate scholarship program, which is both need and merit-based for, for undergraduate students. Then is SRS interest-free loans, targeting a particular audience. Then there is a SAS Kafalat, the asset transfer program. Uh, then is SAS Langars uh, for uh, the, these are soup kitchens. 
uh, for laborers, then as Asas Panagas, these are, these are shelter homes for laborers. Uh, then there are lots of, uh, then there's Asas Nashonama, which is the conditional cash transfer, the nutrition nutrition and health conditional cash transfer program. There is Asas Vasilai Talim, which is a reformed version of an ongoing education conditional cash transfer program. There's Asas Darul Asas, which is the, the orphanages initiative comprising both of standards for private sector and expanding the base of the government's, uh, the, the orphanages that the government supports. Then there are the backbone initiatives such as Asas One Window, which is an uh, ongoing uh, program to be launched by December where we're consolidating all uh, all social protection windows into one. A lot of work has already been done. Then there is Asas Tahafuz, the Pakistan's first shock-oriented safety net, work on which has been ongoing for the last 15 months, soon to be launched. Data for Pakistan, another initiative where we've spatially integrated all the, all the um, um, survey data from the Pakistan Social and Living Standards Measurement Survey, from the mixed surveys, from the uh, from, from the other population-based surveys to provide a spatially interactive interface for, uh, for districts and provinces to enable them to plan better and to enable them to target the poor, poor districts better. I can go on and on and on, but this is just a way to let you know that there is a lot in the SAS bucket. Uh, SAS is not a rebranding of BISP as people continue to say. Uh, BISP is one of the four executing agencies of the social protection arm of uh, SAS, and that is one of the four arms. SAS has 140 elements, of which only seven are executed uh, by, by BISP. Uh, I just want to come to SAS emergency cash now. Uh, if this is topical, I'm sure uh, there's a lot of interest uh, on your part to understand what uh, what happened, how it happened. Uh, before I, I I go through that, I just want to let you know that there were three investments we had made in 2019, which allowed uh, which enabled us to execute a SAS emergency cash. So, so going back in time, March 27, 2019, the SAS program was was officially approved, and subsequent to that, there were a number of uh, foundation building initiatives with, within a week, a new ministry was created, a budget was given. Uh, we embarked on a, to procure the new digital payment system. Um, all the data pieces were, uh, were put in place. The expert committees were, were constituted. Um, the, we have a number of different expert committees, the labor expert group, the, the, the value chain initiative, the the orphanages ex expert committee, et cetera, et cetera. So a lot of spade work was done to build the foundations on which this huge program will stand. And there were three things uh, that happened during that time, which allowed us to execute a SARS emergency cash. So what were those three things? The first one was a new biometric payment system which was procured and deployed in 2019. The second one was a demand side, demand side um, uh, assistance seeking mechanism, which was 
driven by SMS. Uh, and and uh, when Ben spoke, he talked about how vital it was to have those on-demand system. Uh, and my priority ever since I took over as chair of BISP was to create one. So basically, what we what we rolled out and executed as SAS Emergency Cash was designed almost six months ago. Uh, but the organ, but I was not able to convince. Um, everyone that we should embark this route because everybody thought it was really ambitious and very, very bold. And I recall those um, 8 a.m. meetings I used to have with my colleagues when, when we would stand in front of boards, design this, and we knew it was going to work. Uh, and colleagues from Nadra were part of that exercise. So that, that piece was already, at least to the extent, extent of conceptualization, to the extent of, uh, um, a deep dive into feasibility, that piece was already prepared, but not executed. The third thing that we had developed was a new wealth profiling data analytics mechanism. And if you recall, uh, back in uh, December of 2019, we had exited 820,165 individuals from the former BISP lists before we cleaned those lists and brought them into the Kapalak program. Uh, and we used a number of different wealth proxies to exit those individuals, government employment status, ownership of a car, multiple international travel, et cetera, et cetera, uh, FBR, tax paying status. Uh, so when we designed this SAS emergency cash, we basically picked these three threads from the institutional backbone for SAS that we were developing and, and that is how we designed it within 10 days uh, and prepared it for, for execution. Uh, so, so just let me take you through some of the slides to explain things uh, in detail. So what was the context? Um, I, I recall uh, calling up Dr. Alia, who I think who, who may be on the call with us, um, um, on the webinar with us uh, and, and I, told her, I said, I need exact numbers. How many people are daily wage earners in Pakistan? And uh, she and her colleagues who are members of our labor expert group did a quick um, micro analysis of the labor force survey and told us that there are 24 million individuals who are either self-employed in the informal economy or are daily wages or are peace rate earners. Uh, this translated into 160 million individuals Whose, whose livelihoods had been disrupted. Uh, and I can tell you that that is what was palpable on the streets of, of all our cities, because people would call me and tell me that we have, we have filled our cars with packets of ration. We're going, we, we, we want to go and distribute these rations, but when we're doing it, our cars are attacked because there's so many people who, who are in need. We are totally overwhelmed. And I recall two weeks into the, um, into the lockdown, it was a very desperate situation. We were on the verge of, uh, the, you know, our cities were on the verge of, riot, of rioting. Uh, and it was in this context that we pulled these three threads from, uh, from conceptualization exercises that we had done back in 2019 and said, we are just going to go ahead. Uh, we did we, we, we did look at lessons from international experience. So a meta-analysis which was published in 2017 basically 
told us that uh, unconditional cash transfers have a much lower cost per beneficiary than in-kind food distribution, and that the benefit to the local economy um, of vouchers is much higher than uh, than uh, than ration distribution, uh, and that. Uh, the benefit to the local economy and indirect market benefits of cash are much higher uh, than than vouchers. So this really bolstered uh, bolstered our confidence. We started with 104 uh, uh, with an envelope of 144 billion. One of the participants of the uh, of the webinar said that uh, the sum remained unutilized respectfully. Of the 1.2 trillion, SRS was given 144 million initially, with uh, and we were asked to reach out to 12 million families. This was subsequently increased to 203 billion, uh, and we the mandate was extended to 16.9 million families, of which 12 million were new poor, uh, and and as of today, we have disbursed in excess of. 175 billion. So we've gone way past the 144 billion that was earmarked for SAS in the package of 1.2 trillion announced by the government as the emergency COVID package. The 16.9 million impacts half of Pakistan and it is uh, the largest social protection program in, in the ever to have been rolled out in the history of the country. It was a huge and enormous responsibility in a country uh, where uh, politicians are used to disburse money uh, in their constituencies. It was really a quantum change for me to take this proposal to the cabinet that this is how this money is going to be spent. Uh, and we had the prime minister's full support to, to, to do this. So. We decided, uh, as I've outlined in the report, that we will cover the 5 million individuals who are already covered in kafalat, and that we would give them four months assistance uh, together. Uh, but in addition, we launched an 8171 SMS scheme. Uh, it came to be known as Ikasi Ikatar. And uh, the 81, we asked people to send us their identity card numbers. Uh, ben also talked about the importance of uh, universe of unique identification numbers. And I completely agree with you because if we did not have the unique identification numbers, there was no way we could have pulled this, pulled such a, such a thing off. People started uh, sending us their national identity card numbers. And at one point, I remember our colleagues telling us our servers cannot handle the load that is coming. We received 139 million SMSs in this country of 200 million, 139 million SMSs. Uh, once the SMSs hit our servers, we would, um, uh, I beg your pardon, once the national identity card numbers would come, we'd pass them through a series of databases. Those algorithms were assigned and automate, automatic messages were generated at several points. Uh, and then a queue was, um, was then accumulated and that queue was subsequently 
analyzed against the wealth proxies uh, at, at the end. And that took some, it took some weeks for us to do that. In any case, we were staggering messages to people in terms of, uh, in terms of catch collection. Uh, this is what has been described in uh, in the report that we put out. The message used to come. It used to the, the, the first algorithm was that we used to check for correct if the if the ID card number was correct. Then there was a sanity block list. Then there was a government employee list. Then the then the ID numbers would hit our database. Then the queue would be generated. There was a mechanism for sharing data with provinces. Uh, and then uh, the assessment would be re repeated. So uh, in the report, I've described in detail how, how this works, and I don't think time would allow me to, uh, to, to go over the details. There were a number of different wealth proxies which we were using, detail about which is also given in the report. Uh, once we ascertained that a particular individual was eligible, we'd send them an SMS message asking them to collect money. And they would either go to our campsites or to franchises or to ATMs with their identity card numbers and the mobile message. And after biometric verification in real time. So I want to emphasize that the payment system was such that biometric verification was validated real time. They would receive their payment and go home. Now, there were several risks that which we envisaged at inception. Uh, number one, we were going to run these operations during a lockdown. And there was a time when uh, many of our colleagues were working from home, but F Block, which is our headquarter, was perhaps the only building which was working at, at, at something like 50% capacity. We were also operating in a context where spread of virus was a real risk. And to hedge against that, we staggered our payments. We increased the number of cash points. We arranged special campsites, and then banks were mandated to ensure precautionary measures at the cash points. The third risk which we, envis which we envisaged, and I was particularly paranoid about that, uh, was the risk of conflicting messaging. Because when we were designing SRS emergency cash, there were three provinces who wanted to run similar schemes. And I was very nervous that if they ran a scheme of 4,000 and we were running a scheme of 12,000, there would be duplication. And it is people on the ground who would get, uh, you know, who would be tricked. So there was a lot of uh, reaching out to provinces those and and of course in pakistan's complex federal polity there are there are those who come from the same party and those who do not so it took a lot of effort for on my part to explain to them that we are going to be running things in a rule-based manner number one that they did not have capacity to execute and it was best that they collaborated with us so uh, the fourth risk which is not on the slide was the security risk because we were pushing huge amounts of money into the system. Uh, there were desperate people on the streets. Uh, there would be cash moving uh, and the risk of robberies, the risk of people leaving uh, shops with money in hand was, was a real risk. So I just wanted to give you a sense of the 
of the risks and the challenges that we were up against when uh, when we were ready to uh, to step into execution. This is just a few images of what things look like. Uh, you know, it was the most humbling experience of my life to see uh, 2,000 camps reporting on a daily basis uh, on the numbers of people who would line up to uh, to to receive cash, totally in an apolitical, uh, totally in an apolitical manner. The payments that we made was in limited mandate accounts. You know, there were there were lots of articles which were published uh, asking why we were not making payments in digital accounts, uh, and I think that they did not understand our payment system. So, according to the current regulations of the state bank of the controller general of account of the auditor general we are authorized only to put money into limited mandate current accounts into which only the government can put money and only the government can withdraw money the beneficiary after a biometric signature can withdraw money or push it into a savings wallet uh, currently we do not have authorization from the auditor, from controller general, from of accounts and state bank to put money directly into savings account. Even if we had that authorization, the advantage of putting money in the savings wallet is to enable direct savings, direct digital transactions with merchants. And the shops were all closed. The merchant readiness to transact through the savings wallet is currently not there in the country. This would of course be ideal if the, if the retail architecture is so set up and if we are allowed to put money directly into savings wallet, then it would be ideal because we would not have to set up camps. We would just push money into the savings wallet and the people would go and transact wherever they had to. I just wanted to explain this slide in front of this learned audience because this thing was again and again raised in newspapers uh, by people who did not understand what we were doing and why we were doing this. I just want to quickly explain to you uh, some of the attributes of the program. Uh, number one, transparency. For the first time in the history of the country, we put a web portal out and all the details of the transactions were available on that portal in real time. Uh, of course, this is a very old uh, a screenshot. Uh, so you would see provincial breakdowns. And if you, when you'd scroll down, you would, there was a search engine available in which you could put your district at their seal and it would give you the number of accounts credited, debited, etc. Secondly, this was, and this is important, this was totally an apolitical program. Now, if you look at this slide, Sindh overall has a population share of 22%, but in the overall uh, scheme of things, Sindh got a share of 31% because we got more applications of poor individuals and eligible individuals from there. Uh, as you read through the report, you will understand that uh, in our request seeking stream, the 817 month stream, we had decided to, to, to give allocations according to the population shares. 
But when we finished with the SAS emergency cash and we did the assessments, we found out that the biggest need was in Sindh province. And irrespective of political considerations, we gave money to all those who were eligible. There are lots of categories described in these stagger bar charts, and the details of those have been given uh, in the report. So uh, just to share some numbers with you, we received 139 million requests, out of which uh, 66 million were unique. Uh, and the rest were rejected based on a number of different exclusion criteria. The, the, the paper that we published outlines what the five category meant, what the inclusion and exclusion criteria were, um, and what the funding source were and, and other details. I just want to give you a sense of the difficulties we encountered in this very new program. Um, as the Chinese say, you cross the river as you feel the stones. This is exactly like that. First day I went out into the field, I realized half the laborers didn't had no credit on their phones. We had to make the 8171 service free. First day of week we realized what an abysmally low financial literacy people had. So volunteers had to be mobilized to help people SMS. Then there are limitations of data-driven messaging. So if an individual, if the head of a family uh, had died and the daughter had messaged us uh, for assistance, the, the system would uh, message back and say, your father identity card number so-and-so, name so-and-so is eligible. And the, in the, on the first day when I was doing a radio program explaining, uh, a, a girl called and said, well, this has happened to us, what do I do? So we, then we had to develop a workaround. Then there were other issues, uh, you know, expired CNICs were not working. So we got a waiver from Nadra. On a daily basis, we'd have liquidity issues, uh, you know, with banks not being able to cater to the volume of money, we'd have internet issues in remote places. And of course, after the first 10 days, things kind of smoothened out. Uh, then interestingly, we found out that the retailers who would sit in our camps, uh, you know, came banging on my door and said, well, you are deducting a lot of tax on the 100 rupees. Uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of deductions on the commissions. So I realized that on their 100 rupee commission, there was a 24 rupees, a federal tax and a 16 rupee provincial tax. So I went to the federal government, the provincial governments to get those taxes waived off uh, for the SARS emergency cash. And, and what I went through, there, there were layers and layers of complexity when you get uh, a, a, you know, a tariff waiver. Then we confronted a lot of cyber attacks, you know, fake money, fake SMSs, fake, um, uh, fake um, websites, and we continue to encounter them. So there's a permanent group that looks at the nature of cyber attacks and, uh, and, and does the res resolution. Our biggest challenge was the deductions by unscrupulous retailers, you know, because the people who go to collect money are 
uh, have very, very low, have literally no, mostly no level of literacy. So it's, so, um, so the retailers always have this incentive to deduct money. Uh, biometric payment fa payment failure was 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 another challenge, and its percentage suddenly went high because these were first-time individuals who were collecting money. Currently, it is at about seven percent. We had to develop a workaround uh, where where these individuals are now paid in bank branches. And then in certain categories, there was slow withdrawal. So, um, so I'm sure that Shujat will tell you that over a weekend, Shujat and his colleagues sat and did a did a survey. Uh, and I sat with them on, on the weekend, uh, what is the reason for the slow withdrawal? And then based on the insights of Shujat's survey, we uh, we took a number of different measures and over the next week, the, the, the payment speed uh, got up. This is just a snapshot to let you know that when you run a new program, there are things uh, that you do not expect, but you need to have the appetite and the courage to, uh, to, to you, you know, to accept that there will be issues and that you have the commitment and the energy and the stamina to, um, uh, to, to resolve them. Uh, for us, the SAS emergency cash experience was, was quite a watershed in a variety of different ways. Um, someone said right at the beginning of the webinar that COVID is likely to be a protracted problem. And even COVID notwithstanding, we live in a country where from time to time we are faced with catastrophes, you know, earthquakes, floods, displacements. So the know-how that we have gained in designing and implementing a massive national program in real time in a context of complexity and uncertainty with speed is really valuable. And that's part of the reason why I would every night at 12 midnight try and document what was being done. Finally, the product of that was released as an interim report, but I thought it was so critical to share. Uh, we, we also learned new ways of doing things and this experience made the government more data-driven, more experimental, more agile. Uh, we relied on uh, on digital ways of working a lot, and 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 we have now institutionalized those. Uh, we th this program forced us to, forced us to set new whole of government uh, arrangements, which we found very useful. And we also realized how important financial literacy was because we're trying to invest in that space now. Uh, beyond this, the, the, you know, as the bullet line item says, uh, the great global reimagination of social welfare that we had envisaged in SARS, this has really brought us closer to that. Um, and for the international audience, uh, you know, um, uh, our message with great humility is that if you have unique personal identification systems and numbers, then there are ways to combine them with the pervasiveness of mobile phones and internet connectivity to develop similar programs. So it was with that in view as well that we shared the report, even while the program is ongoing. For us, there are a number of policy questions on the table. 
uh, we have 12 million new beneficiaries as our new national socioeconomic survey data gathering exercise is ongoing and is more than 50% complete. Uh, are these emergency beneficiaries only? Uh, and what kind of entitlements do they have in our new programs? Uh, do they, what, will they have preferential entitlements in, uh, in Asas Nashonama or in our education conditional cash transfers? We're also in the midst of a very deep-seated policy discourse on the horizontal and vertical scale of cash transfers. Uh, and, and of course, we look at institutions like PIDE and, uh, and, and uh, the Bureau of Statistics uh, to somehow come up with the new income and multidimensional poverty numbers based on uh, sample-based surveys, because that's not our domain. Um, so we really hope that a nationally representative sample survey would, would get up and running uh, real soon. Uh, our priorities now uh, are to expand the base of social protection. We are very focused on uh, getting the job done on the National Socioeconomic Registry. Uh, by December this year, our one window social, op social protection operations work on, which has been ongoing for quite some time. I'm very committed to bringing them to fruition also by the end of the year. Uh, there is this huge landscape of poverty graduation initiatives and the other SRS programs that target other beneficiary communities on which work has been accelerated. Uh, we, we are making investments for financial inclusion. And of course, the, the discourse has opened to use uh, even our existing data for subsidies. So we're in deep conversation with the Ministry of Power, uh, power on that. So. Um, uh, just to share this report, um, which is basically an account of real-time evaluation and elaboration of the methodology. I should have put the URL there, but I will send it to Nadeem uh, for circulation to the group. I want to thank you once again uh, for having me on the webinar. Um, Nadeem said right at the very beginning that, uh, that, that he would like to promote uh, the discourse on learning. Uh, I, as a government functionary now, not involved in academics anymore, uh, as a government functionary involved deeply in implementation, I welcome that. We have talked about a potential collaboration between PIDE and SAS, and I, uh, and, and, and I extend you a hand of friendship very much. Uh, welcome welcome your uh, your insights uh, and and i hope that we will con continue with this tradition of holding uh, discourses together thank you very much um, and i may have may have gone well over time for which i apologize thank you dr sarinisha now over to vice chancellor dr nadeem thank you thank you thank you minister i think it was very nice very wonderful very wonderful of you to take the time to give us an overview, and it's a very detailed overview. I was personally very, uh, you know, energized. I learned a lot today, and certainly um, you've expanded the program a lot, and it's well worth reviewing. Let me quickly go to the floor because unfortunately we're running out of time, so I might still do it. Um, let's go to um, uh, get, uh, first Rabia Awan from Pakistan Bureau of Statistics. Uh, thank you very much, Dr. Saab, uh, for giving me the floor. 
thank you, Dr. Saiba, that uh, Dr. Sania, it's a wonderful presentation and it's give us a lot of knowledge about whole process. And um, uh, I wish you best of luck for the future programs. Uh, on the slide of your policy questions, you asked two things, uh, one about the multidimensional numbers. So for the information that the district level survey for PSM 1920 has completed and the data processing can progress and most probably by end of this year, we will have the multidimensional numbers. The other thing which I have also uh, mentioned in my text that PBS is conducting a national, nationally representative and provincial representative survey to gauge the impact, the socioeconomic impact of the COVID-19. And that results will also, uh, that module also includes the social protection module and um, the coping strategies people have adopted and how much assistance they have got from the uh, from the assistance programs. So that will give you the idea and the, the level uh, that how much people have gained from it and how much they have impacted. Um, I think um, uh, the presentation from the professor is also very impressive. And I think we should they, these, these presentations should be shared with us to uh, make our uh, policies for the things um, which we need to implement in the future. Uh, thank you very much. This is only for the explanation, not for any question. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Rabia. Sayyid Mustafa. Sayyid Mustafa is probably gone. So let's no, go. To I'm Shuhab still here. Um, sorry, I was muted. So, uh, but thank you so much, um, Dr. Sab. Uh, and Dr. Um, Sania, once again, congratulations on the whole thing. Even in hindsight, I don't think there could have been done any better, the emergency cash transfer. Um, my question pertains to, of course, the most uh, aspect of the debate, which is financing social protection. Um, we've spoken about, um, especially uh, Dr. Saab has spoken about, uh, you know, extending uh, social protection to all uh, individuals uh, throughout the life cycle. Um, naturally, that is where financing actually comes in. Um, when we look at the Alan Greenspan report of uh, 1980, um, these financing institutions, especially the Social Security uh, Institution in the US, um, it sort of could not finance itself, it was forced saving essentially. When we look at um, the systems in Europe, they also don't finance themselves, and there is always government intervention required. Um, the real question for me as a citizen is, um, to what extent are we actually dealing with uh, notions of uh, decommodification of labor? Um, and where exactly would we be drawing the line uh, between, let's say, taxation? Because essentially, end of the day, uh, whether we call it a bond, whether we call it uh, government borrowing, it would end of the day result in taxation either through inflation um, or <coughs> so where would we draw the line so if the panel can uh, sort of explain that that would be very great thank you sure we'll come to the panel in a minute let me just take the two or three questions and then we'll come back to the panel shoab salim yes thank you so much dr Saab. thank you so much thank you ma'am sanya it's an excellent presentation you've given Thank you, every panelist. Uh, an excellent thing Dr. Noreen said that probably the international brands, we need to learn from them, the policies, they actually run for their employers, their workers, the social protection fabric they are using. 
some of the companies here, I belong to Sialkot and some of the big brands are working here, making international uh, sports goods, surgical items and leather products. They actually force the owners of the companies to do this kind of social protection for them here in Pakistan. But this circles needs to be more stretched out. And I would say the ASAS program recently witnessed more than 46 million plus distribution in Sialkot. But I believe we have actually learned a way here in Sialkot due to COVID-19 that we need to come out of the conventional ways of doing business, uh, subsidizing different kinds of support mechanisms and providing education mechanisms. We have learned a lot. All those businesses which are doing typically these three major lines I've mentioned over here in Sialkot, they switch themselves towards making with the PPEs and other support mechanisms which are used are uh, being used nowadays uh, in, in the world for the protective measures of COVID-19. Now, Pakistan uh, going uh, getting support from Sialkot are one of the biggest exporters of PPEs. Finally, Dr. Sanya, I would uh, like to request you this one thing that I've personally observed, that there are very smart drainages uh, when it comes to our social public system or when it comes to our economic uh, planning cycles that we need to be more cautious and we need to be very smart. We need to outsmart all these kind of loopholes and drainages, which will end up uh, having all those financial assistance and protection measures falling into the wrong hands. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Nadeem, sir, for your time, Kevin. Thank you, Jeev. Vakar Sumro, sir. Sumro, sir. Sumro. Manzoor Sumra, sorry, my mistake. Yes. Sorry. Thank you, thank you very much. Uh, thank you so much uh, for working with you while you were uh, Minister of Science and Technology for a short stint, and uh, I was Chairman of Pakistan Science Foundation. So I know your way of working. My question here is you talked about the financial uh, illiteracy. Uh, did you not, in this uh, experience, felt at the time uh, that overall literacy is a bigger problem, illiteracy is a bigger problem, and if some of the resources of uh, uh, next national exchequer are, uh, you know, extended to education overall, uh, that could uh, help the people at large. Thank you. Thank you. Last question, Shahid Mahmood. Assalamu alaikum. Can you hear me? Welcome, we can. Go ahead. Okay. Um, <clears throat> a very nice discussion. Uh, I'm Shahid Mahmood, uh, research fellow at PIDE. Uh, just a few observations, uh, uh, and I won't take much time. Uh, quick observations, not in any specific order. But uh, let me first begin by stating that as a student of uh, economic history, uh, what do we learn from economic history about uh, uh, aspects like anti-poverty expenditures and everything like that. Uh, well, the f you go back to uh, the whole history of it, this thing. For example, in England, they have a very well-documented history of uh, anti-poverty expenditures going all the way back to Elizabethan era. And what does the historical evidence say about uh, overcoming poverty and inequality? And that uh, there is only one word. There is only one word, for, and that is economic growth. No social safety net, no. They, they won't do it. If you are looking at poverty, inequality, and taking care of it, and taking care of it permanently, like the Chinese have, they've brought out 700 million people out permanently out of poverty, 
there's only economic growth and inclusive economic growth not social safety nets not cash handouts that 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 won't do these are temporary these are temporary in nature they are not permanent in nature they won't bring out people out of poverty or won't help income inequalities that persist in a society now uh, one of the interesting things that dr sanya mentioned was that they received 139 million messages uh, for help uh, now uh, just a quick reminder that uh, pakistan's anti poverty efforts or uh, these kind of efforts go back all the way to 1950s it's not current it's not after 2000s in 1950s we used to have a lot of rural support programs that are still continuing in one form of a, or another and then definitely some institutions like in 70 eobi came up in 1970s pakistan has had an extensive program and a lot of expenditures going towards this uh, aim but then let me put this question this way if you are receiving 139 million messages after all these expenditures including psdp including bisp expenditures that are about 1000 billion now by now what does that say about the effectiveness of social security expenditures that have been done uh, since uh, since uh, since long or till now uh, so let me ask why couldn't you build a savings buffer why couldn't they build a savings buffer that they could use in these kind of circumstances is it a policy failure why didn't policy makers think about it and third and the last one you need quality institutions to make these kind of things work so for the last one week my mother has been admitted in islamabad's most well known private hospital that charges a ridiculous amount of money all right but their services I, i'm sorry to say their services are so pathetic uh, it took them four or five days just to find out what the problem was so i'm thinking in terms of what the situation is in public sector and especially in rural areas so suppose now uh, so for example now the government is handing out uh, say uh, in saaf cards but let me ask you the question what about the quality of hospitals in pakistan how does it help you are okay, again okay again sorry you again the government hmm. is making the same mistake that i have pointed out again and again you are okay. just i think your point uh, is well taken okay okay point you are good. just uh, uh, sorry just you are uh, the government and its policy it's again all towards the supply side what about the demand okay. side what about the fair quality enough. of institutions they are not there thank you fair fair enough okay let's go back to the panel and see um Minister, would you like to take the lead? Let me just add something to what Shahid said, Minister. While your SS program is increasing, and why, while the government's welfare program is increasing, yesterday and the day before on Twitter and Facebook, there were a lot of pictures of street vendors' capital being destroyed in Islamabad. We've done a number of webinars on excluding the poor. We've taken out a, a whole magazine on excluding the poor. because the poor are actually excluded from opportunity so if you're excluding them on, them on the one side and giving them opportunity on the other side uh, sorry giving them welfare on the other side is that a good balance or do we need more opportunity and more growth to really do you know get rid of poverty and i'll invite the minister and ben olken and others to comment on all this questions that have been asked no definitely i mean there is uh, there is no question that those who are dis disadvantaged should be given economic opportunities 
uh, and that you know sustainable economic opportunities uh, are much better you know in simple terms are much better than than government handouts there, there clearly is no uh, there, there, there clearly no two views about that the specific incident that you may be talking about or referring to uh, is the removal of the vending stalls uh, and if that is the case, then then we know that this is a very complex dynamic. Um, these these opportunities are not regulated. They need to be. There are mafias and all kinds of uh, illicit activity that happens around this. And and, and I agree that the government needs to uh, focus on. Uh, formalizing these arrangements and making sure that these economic opportunities to poor individuals uh, are given in an even-handed manner uh, and without the dynamic of um, elite capture factoring in as, as it usually does in the distribution of such economic opportunities. Uh, the Prime Minister has raised this in cabinet meetings on at, on several occasions. So, uh, so I completely agree that these things need to be done in a streamlined manner. Dr. Manzoor talked about. I'll just take a couple of things. I'll just touch upon a couple of things that have been mentioned. I'm sure the other panelists will gain too. He talked about financial literacy and asked if uh, if I was worried about literacy rather than financial literacy. And, um, and of course, there are, are again no two questions about the importance of literacy. But here we are going to a laborer's camp when each one of them owns this mobile phone. So even in even these illiterate uh, individuals who've had no education opportunity know how to operate cell phones, their own cell phones. And this is a huge disruptor and an opportunity that we could tap. And it was within this context that I said that if they had been better literate financially, they would have been able to benefit from SR services a lot better. So it was within the context of the 8171 campaign that, that I had raised this. Um, the last colleague talked about economic growth and the importance of economic growth in reducing poverty. I completely agree. Uh, I mean, that's one of the most sustainable mechanisms of poverty reduction. Whenever, wherever there have been massive quantum strides in poverty reduction, we have seen uh, massive economic growth and the ability of governments to accrue the benefits of, of that growth equitably to populations. And there is no arguing with that. But in every population, there will be individuals who will require handholding and social assistance. So they will be the disabled and the and, and widows who cannot work and the extreme poor who will require social assistance. And I think a challenge for every government is to ensure that these individuals are properly targeted, that there are no that there are minimal inclusion and exclusion errors, and that that the government has has a system that is responsive to their needs and does not sit on data for, for 10 years. And that has a system of developing live registries that are responsive to the needs of the, um, the people and, and, and has the ability to, uh, to, to deliver money spent with integrity. And that is what we're trying to focus on. 
Yes, over. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Let me go to Ben Olkin. Ben, do you have any Thank comments? Thank you. Yes, I had, a few, I had a few comments based on all the discussion. I think this has really been a terrific discussion, and I really enjoyed everyone's presentations. Um, I, I had three things I wanted to say. The first is I think that the emergency cost assistance program that Dr. Sanya uh, described, it really is very impressive. And I think it's a really great, a really terrific example of how to use kind of the, I think the story of how sort of some of those things were sort of those building blocks have been put in place and they were able to be drawn upon in the crisis to sort of stand up this really large program very quickly is exactly kind of a sort of a prime example of what I was talking about, about how building the foundations and the infrastructure can allow you to adapt dynamically in the future. And I think that the question, um, you know, in addition to sort of thinking about what the next phases uh, of a house are going to be now, I, I would also encourage the, the government to be thinking even more, uh, thinking as well about how, what other, what are the other kinds of infrastructure that you would like to build or put in place so that the next time um, something happens, uh, you're able to sort of do, an, you know, have an even more robust system that you can, you can draw upon. Uh, I think that some of the things about dynamic, you know, obviously universal IDs uh, through like CNIC is really critical. Um, but bringing other kinds of data into the into the into play, making it more dynamic, all those things are going to be really helpful the next time that that, that there is something like this that's going to happen, an emergency, and there and there will be whether it's you know a new COVID shock of the type I was talking about, or other kinds of economic or other kinds of shocks, you know, shocks do happen. Uh, the second thing I wanted to say um, is, uh, you know, of course I agree with, with with the comment that inclusive economic growth is is the best long run strategy for reducing poverty. I think we all agree with that. However, um, that doesn't mean there's not an important role for social assistance and social protection programs. And I think that those are, you know, number one, economic growth takes a really long time. We have people who really need help now. And uh, there's a really important role for uh, providing social assistance for the long run poor, social protection for those who face shocks, to enable people to invest in the next generation and sort of, you know, for human capital and, uh, and, and other things for the next generation and to enable people to overcome credit constraints and invest in businesses and, and bring themselves up from poverty. Those are all different roles for social protection to play now. And that can complement sort of overall economic growth in, in, as part of an overall poverty reduction strategy. And those are all really important. And the third thing I wanted to say was, I think that, you know, both Dr. Shijat and Dr. Nasser in their comments raised some, some and also Dr. Sami, I talked about different types of programs with different goals. Um, you know, whether it was, uh, you know, different packages for health and education, all the many different, I lost track, hundred and something different components of a Haas. I think one of the things that I think is, is um, maybe kind of the next frontier of sort of targeting is how do you identify which individuals would benefit most from different types of programs? And some of the work that, that, that our team has been doing uh, with, um, uh, with the BISP ministry and with, with Kafala is, is trying to think about one particular aspect of that question of how do you get the right people into the right kinds of programs. But I think to me, as you're developing kind of not just a one size fits all, but sort of multi different programs, sort of figuring out which programs are more effective for whom is an interesting, a really important question. And actually one that, that I think there's an opportunity to really sort of advance, advance our knowledge on. So I'll just leave those as, as my comments. Thank you all very much. It was a terrific discussion. Thank you, Ben. Since you are an expert in this area, I think I have to pick your brain a little. Is it possible for you to comment? Um, can we, I mean, is there a relationship between social protection and growth? Should we aim for the kind of social protection that Sweden or Norway has? 
Is it going to slow down our growth? Is it not? Or let me put it slightly differently. Here's a little graph that I drew up. Is the relationship between social protection like this, if you can see it, or is it not? Or is it, um, is it you know, uh, um, an upward sloping curve? Is it, a, is it like a demand curve or is it an upward sloping curve? <laughs> That's so a great question. Which, which, how much social protection should we aim for? That is a really terrific question. And honestly, uh, I wish I had a good answer to say what is the slope of that curve or even what the sign of that curve is. It's not obvious to me that that curve is downward sloping the way you draw it. It's for not? example, okay. it's not. It could, for be example, it could be negative. Sure. For example, um, think about uh, human capital investments, right? So hmm. I think one thing um, that I think we know is that sort of uh, one, you know, investing in the next generation and sort of in, encouraging education investments in the next generation could lead to higher levels of economic growth in the long run. And so if you think that a if lot I of these houses... If I kept education out, then you'd agree with me the curve is negative. Uh, I think education, health, I think there are other heads of human capital investments like health, health investments, for example. So I think we know that preventing stunting, for example, of young children is something that we think right. is very high long run okay. investments. So my, my only point is that even certainly when you think about the next generation, it's not obvious. If you think about the current generation, I think there are some types of programs where you can actually encourage them to um, encourage people to uh, invest in businesses. So I, I think it's not, it's not even obvious to me that the curve is negative. And even if it is, it's not clear what the slope is. So I think, and also I would say that the constraints to economic growth tend to be much more things about, you know, what is the overall kind of regulatory and investment climate? What is the macro, you know, macro situation of the country look like? The, the things that are determining level of economic growth are, are less, I think, about the social protection and more about other things about the economy, in my opinion. But I don't have great data on that, but that's my, okay. that's my suspicion. Last, last question. The, the West actually developed social protection after they grew. Their acceleration or their birth in growth was before they developed social protection, or am I wrong? Um... I'm thinking about the answer to that question. So I think that the expand in general, I think that we do think that that most countries as they've as they've grown have become richer and sort of created more social protection systems. Um, it is I think you're right that sort of the 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 industrial revolution sort of happened at sort of a time of, of uh, where there was relatively less in social protection than there certainly is now. Um, but sort of those things did devolve sort of evolve over the, you know, in the same time uh, over, over period. But I think that the, I don't think that's the right way to, the right question to ask in the sense of, I think that the type, first of all, we know a lot more now about social protection systems. We have better technologies. We have better understanding of these systems. We have better ability to deliver them now. So just because, you know, the US or the UK went through something over the 19th and 20th century doesn't mean that a country like Pakistan or Indonesia or wherever has to go through the same trajectory. We can go a lot faster. And I think that we can take advantage of, the, of all of the sort of the things that we've learned from the developed world and sort of have, try to have a better experience than, than the other countries have. Yeah, appreciate that. Okay, Dr. Safta Sohail, you wanted to say something? Yeah. Uh, unmute yourself, Safta, unmute yourself. Okay. Well, uh, I was just saying that when I was coming uh, to attend the webinar, I expected that a lot of uh, research issues would be raised, and that has been actually the, the case. 
So I'll uh, respond to some of the comments uh, made by other speakers as well as the questions. You know, one of the major questions which uh, uh, all that ISAS is doing is, is, is wonderful, but uh, should we take out the um, employee out of the industrial relations uh, to take uh, welfare or support or um, uh, services to him? Now that we, we, I think we should boldly face this question. Uh, where is the employer? Uh, we are uh, of course taking uh, social assistance to a large number of uh, people. Uh, in, in COVID, we had to take it to a bigger, but still uh, the missing middle is there. Uh, one way to look at this 139 million um, messages is that uh, the low middle classes, middle classes, uh, they are also very uh, vulnerable. Uh, another question uh, Mr. Mustafa asked about the, the government's contribution. Now, uh, the social security institutions run on the contribution of the employers and in case of EOBI, one person by the, by the employee, but they're working very well. If you look at the average cost, they are very, very low. Uh, for for me, for many for many analysts, and NSCR is about the value for money, which is very good. But uh, when we are embarking upon these new uh, schemes like say Sahulat, let's compare the costs. The uh, somebody talked about um, uh, a private hospital charging exorbitantly. I think this is a high time that we uh, we create quality uh, knowledge. And then uh, the last thing is that. Uh, uh, this is the knowledge which would uh, save us from uh, confusion of taxonomy, you know, which uh, we should have a national consensus on picking the word to guide us in the long term. Uh, are we going to use uh, social protection uh, equal to social assistance equal to charity, or uh, we uh, use a different uh, term? And I think in that context, uh, discussing the models, it, it, uh, uh, I'm sure Pite would. Uh, undertake much more research, and uh, uh, we already have discussed between PAID and the Social Protection Resource Center to have a common research agenda. What models are we talking about? In Turkey, in Malaysia, uh, government picks uh, contributions for a large number of people. Uh, in Malaysia, 23% is taken off the uh, payrolls and 11% is paid by the government. In Turkey, uh, out of 82 million population, contribution for 10 million for the health uh, is uh, picked up uh, by, the, by the government. And you have shown that uh, graph, that, that that's a too big a research item, uh, would have a lot of studies in that. But um, uh, why the out-of-pocket expenditure is very low in the countries which have preferred institutional uh -huh. welfare, like UK, for example. Okay. So can I just Safter, can I just hold you up for a minute? The minister needs to go. So mm -hmm. uh, if she hasn't gone already, let me just bid goodbye to her. Minister Sab, thank you very much for being with us. And uh, anything that PID can do for you, we're always ready to do. So, but I think she's already gone. So I'm a little late. But nevertheless, I hope it will be conveyed to the minister. We're always ready to help any part of the government. PID is a government institution ready to help. So go ahead, Safter. Yeah, uh, you, sir, what I was saying was that uh, there's a huge research agenda. This is a too important topic uh, uh, for, for any country, particularly for a country like Pakistan. So producing high quality research, uh, comparing and contrasting the options which have been adopted in different countries uh, in South Asia, in particular <clears throat> elsewhere also. So 
this uh, webinar has uh, has thrown up a lot of research ideas and I, i'll i'll suggest that dr nasir in particular uh, do a critical summary of um, of the discussions isolating key research themes which appear to be emerging and then uh, we uh, join hands to produce high quality knowledge to help the policy makers to help the development uh, sector uh, in in terms of social assistance also but i think there are two big uh, uh, two important issues uh, uh, too many which could not be covered obviously in this one sem webinar we should perhaps have more but after producing high quality knowledge thank you we will we will inshallah so subsidy we are with you entirely nasir and shujaat ben needs to leave so unless you have something to say we if you have something to say we'll bid, bid give ben goodbye ben thank you very much for being with us and uh, we are grateful we uh, acknowledge your um uh, interest in taking out time to help us we will try and produce more work and send it to you and get your um, terrific you know, uh, thank you all for having me i really appreciate the opportunity bye bye thank you so no, much sir, whatever you like no sir that over from ashad you uh, you have the floor go ahead uh, yes sir uh, as shahid saab said that uh, shahid, shahid uh, dr shahid has given the example of china uh, that uh, china have a very robust growth strategy uh, so i think and i suggest that pakistan also adopted an inclusive growth strategy uh, where social safety net could be one pillar of inclusive growth strategy but not the uh, entire strategy to alleviate poverty for poverty alleviation we have a special focus uh, on high efficient and sustained growth uh, the growth that can create jobs and second we have to invest on social inclusion as i was uh, telling that in balochistan uh, more than half of the children they are still uh, out of school so we have to invest we have to invest on education and we have to overcome regional uh, disparities uh, to build human capacity and second we have to eliminate market and institutional failures and social exclusions to level the playing field and uh, as uh, uh, ben has told that uh, uh, you know that right now uh, isar strategy have some one, 134 uh, uh, policy pillars and initiatives and this uh, panacea data has been widely shared because i was a part of pisp and uh, every provincial and federal program and lot of even private organizations like akrsp etc they are using the data so do uh, so ehsas uh, and this they has to done in mapping of uh, uh, beneficiaries that okay uh, how uh, there could be various beneficiaries who are getting assistance only from bisp some are getting assistance from other provincial programs so so such mapping can also tell you the effectiveness of social safety net and social protections right now in pakistan that okay Uh, how much uh, there could be duplication how much there is exclusion so it can even uh, help to build a dynamic registry uh, of uh, poor people in pakistan thank you fair enough nasir sir thank you so much sir so i just to conclude this by saying that there is no doubt the, the growth is basically the prime thing to be to uplift the status these are the helping tool that definitely support in term of the people those actually need these things so that the growth no one can deny the role of this growth and development strategy but we should have to be more 
vigilant while talking about the poor don't don't have a even the human capital as well as the access to the resources for that we need to to look into this type of uh, type of things and uh, dr softer rightly said we have to be more vigilant on uh, conducting a well uh, research top of this topic and come up with the, the the solution that really help us to 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 solve these issues in a very sustainable manner thank you so much Thank you very much. I think we had a wonderful discussion. Um, the minister really gave us a very good presentation. Everybody had a probably we had too big an agenda, but nevertheless, it's good we started this. We'll do more of this, inshallah. We'll have more on social protection, but I do think that uh, we need to worry about whether social protection is negatively related to growth or not, because. The way I look at it is our social protection has increased and our growth has gone down. So there is something to think about there. And the way I look at it also is that we have excluded the poor for the last 70 years. And maybe some of my friends in Synth Club tell me that it's good to give poor handouts because it keeps the status quo. Uh, we exclude the poor from cities, we exclude the poor from putting up street vending, we exclude the poor from living in cities, we have Kachi Abadi, we throw, the, throw them out. We have no poor school for the poor. We had a webinar on schools recently. All the poor schools are being destroyed by the judiciary and by the, by the civil service. There are no playgrounds for the poor. There are no libraries for the poor. So we give them social protection. I mean, it, does that balance out? Is that an equation that we should think about? Or is it just about designing more and more and designing more and more and handing them out? I'm not sure whether that's doing anything. And Ben Olkin, I certainly don't agree with him. On that, the curve is negative. And I think if you do a search, you'll find out the curve is negative. We really need to build for our times. We are trying to build something. We are trying to build a Rolls Royce on a $2,000 per capita income, which is, to me, a bit of a stretch. Nevertheless, thank you very much, folks. Great discussion. Enjoyed it. Inshallah, we'll do it again soon. Bye-bye. All the best. Khuda Hafiz.